It is my assertion last week, continuing on this week, the word of God is the authority for our lives as disciples of Jesus. And what I want to do today is, in part, talk about why that's the case. But before I get to why that's the case, I want us to kind of think about what would happen what would happen if if we as disciples of Jesus just sort of collectively decided or even individually decided that God's word wasn't the authority for our lives? And I don't mean what would happen if we just said it's not, but what would happen if we said it's not and then we began to live as though the word of God were not the authority for our lives? Now, I think probably in our minds we think things would continue basically as they are. That we wouldn't, things wouldn't be much different than they are right now if we were to just reject God's word. But, but I, think, I think it would be. I think it would be for two reasons. I think it would be for one reason because I know me. Now, this is just for me. Perhaps you're a much better human being than I am. But here's what I know. At the core of my being, I'm really not a good human being. When the Bible says the human heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, I don't look at that and say, gosh, that says terrible things about people. I look at that and go, yes, Lord, help me. And I know that if it was left up to me to determine what was right and what was wrong, if it was left up to me to determine who God was and what God was like, I would not land where I land now with the Bible as my final authority. But I also don't think, not just because of me, I think because of what we see in God's Word. Because God's Word actually kind of tells us what happens if the people of God Toss off the word of God as the authority for their lives. The Bible says that where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Happy is the one who keeps the law. We're just focused on the first half. The people are unrestrained. Now, vision there, it refers to the, the prophetic revelation a prophet received from God as he took God's word to God's people. So we'll talk about this in a bit, but think about all the times, if you've ever read the Old Testament, where the prophets went to the people and said, thus says the word of God. Or something along the lines of, and the word of God came to Moses and, and said. That's what it means by the vision, the prophetic vision. Now for us today, we're not given these new revelations by prophetic visions. We have God's word. We have been given all of God's prophetic revelations for us that tell us who and how and all of that kind of stuff in here. So where there is no vision, so where the word of God is, is cast off, it's not received, the people are unrestrained. Now unrestrained, it, it pictures people casting off all restraint and fully giving themselves over to their own sinful Desires. So what this verse tells us is where God's word isn't found, 
And where the word of God isn't accepted. And where the word of God isn't heeded. Or where the word of God is not the authority. The people cast off all restraint. And they run wild living to fulfill their own sinful desires. This unrestrained behavior happens because when God's word is not the authority, people make up their own ideas. They make up their own ideas about what God is like. We don't have time today, but take some time this week and read Romans 1 verses 18 through 36. And it gives a strong description about what happens in a culture when a people become unrestrained. Now, in verse 22, it says they claim themselves to be wise, but they actually become fools. And they're fools because they change what God has revealed about himself for something they like better. Then in verse 25, we're told they again exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve something of their own creation. And they begin to run wild. They begin to become unrestrained. As they exchange the truth of God for a lie. This is why God's word must be always be the authority for our lives as disciples. When we reject God's word as the authority for our lives, we begin to come up with our own ideas about who God is. What God is like and what God demands. We come up with our own ideas about who Jesus is. What Jesus is like, what Jesus has done and what Jesus demands. Now, in some ways, that would not be a bad deal. Right? Because we get to kind of do whatever we want. Our God is however we like Him to be. Now the the problem with this is that God is real. Right? I mean, this is what it all comes down to. If, If God is imaginary, if He is our imaginary friend in the sky... If if Jesus really didn't live and he really didn't die and he really didn't rise again and he's just a, a folk tale to make us feel good, then by all means, we should create him however we want him to be. If he's no different than a Marvel comic character, then each author can change his origin story and his morality and his lifestyle. But if Jesus is real. If God is real, then God is like something, right? If God is real, then God is someone specific. If God is real, God has particular demands he places. If Jesus is real, he is something, he is someone specific. If Jesus is real, he is like something in particular. If Jesus is real, he has specific demands he he makes on those who come to him. Now we know this with 
with people we can, flesh and blood people we can see. I've used this illustration before. But if I were to tell you about my friend Scott Watson, who is five feet tall, and he has long shaggy hair, and he loves Texas, and he's a vegan... You would think, one, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a different Scott. Well, I must know a different Scott Watson from where I came from somewhere else. I said, no, no, it's the Scott that's married to Melissa. You would say, you're delusional. I know Scott, and that's not Scott at all. Why can't I just make Scott to be what I want him to be? Why can't I just say he's a four foot tall vegan who has long hair and likes Texas? Because Scott is someone particular. Scott has a particular attitude and a way he is and who he is and what he looks like. And I don't just get to make him up to be what I want him to be. If God is real, it's the same thing. I can accept Scott for who he is or I can reject Scott, but I can't make him up to fit my imagination. In the same way, if God is real, I can accept God or I can reject God. But I do not get to make up what God is like. We live in a day where there are a lot of perceived threats to the church, particularly from the government and often forms of legislation. But here's what I'm going to tell you. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ will never, ever come from any government or any piece of legislation. Governments have been trying to stop the church of Jesus Christ since the day of Pentecost. And they have always failed. And they will always fail because Jesus said He would build His church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The greatest threats to the church of Jesus Christ will never come from an outside source like government-sponsored legislation. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is for disciples of Jesus to abandon God's Word as the authority for their lives. To develop their own ideas about what God is like, about what Jesus is like, and begin to cast off restraint and run wild. Since the greatest threat to the church is for disciples of Jesus to abandon God's word as the authority for their lives, develop faulty ideas about what God is like, cast off restraint and run wild, then we must ensure we are a people of the book and that God's word is the authority for our lives. Open your Bible. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 is where I'm going to start. I'm going to read all the way down through chapter 4, verse 6, verse 5. But we're only going to look at two verses today. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. It should be on page 915 if you have a pew Bible. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
All scripture is inspired by God and is beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, you self-restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The title of the message is The Authority of God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, help us to take the warning from Proverbs seriously. Or we see it all over. Mercy. Or we see it all over. Father, we see the world casting off restraint and running wild. Far worse than that. We see people who are professing your name. They profess Jesus as Savior and Lord. And they cast off your word. They cast off all restraint. And they run wild. Man, and Lord, if they just did that themselves, that would be bad enough. But gracious, they are prolific writers. Powerful social media influencers. Happily leading people to hell. Gracious God, help us in this. Let us take seriously what we're looking at today about your word being your word. Let us take seriously the command to be diligent, study your word and show ourselves approved unto God, being able to rightly divide your truth. Let us take seriously what we see today about your word being the final authority for our lives. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your word and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. Paul had led him to Christ. Paul had discipled him uh, and planted him in Ephesus to pastor the church there. Most of what you read in commentaries and such about Timothy, and you, you see it in the Word, is that Timothy was most likely timid by nature. And so Paul often speaks of his need to take courage or to, to do something to be courageous. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Things like that. Paul is nearing the end of his life in 2 Timothy 3. So far as we know, this is the last book he wrote. And there's a measure of concern in Paul's writing about Timothy being faithful to the end. So he's writing to Timothy, encouraging him to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. 
And to understand Paul's flow of thought and how we get to where we're at today, we kind of have to understand what's been said before. Paul starts the letter by reminding Timothy of his godly heritage that he received from his mother and his grandmother who had taught him God's word. Paul explains to Timothy God had not given him a spirit of timidity, but power, love, and of discipline. Because the spirit of God that was given to Timothy, he is to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, continue to proclaim the gospel and entrust the gospel to other men who would suffer for the gospel, proclaim the gospel and entrust the gospel to other men. Now, Paul didn't sugarcoat anything in any of his writings. So as Paul is writing to Timothy, he's making sure Timothy knows things are not going to get easier as time goes on. It's not, Timothy, the longer you stay, the better it gets. It is things are hard now and things are going to continue to get hard. Being faithful to the end will not be easy. There will be hardships that you'll face, temptations to live in sin. There will be difficult people to deal with. And Timothy must respond to them in a way befitting the servant of the Most High God. That brings us to chapter 3. Where Paul again launches into the idea of his brutal honesty, talking about the days will come, what it will be like at the end when people are boastful and arrogant and lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God, and all of those things. And he explains to Timothy the depravity of man will abound. There will be false teachers who encourage people in their depravity. Despite this, Timothy is to remain faithful to Jesus. And one of the reasons Paul is so concerned about this is he doesn't want Timothy to end up like Demas who loved the world and abandoned Jesus. He doesn't want him to look and see the life would be easier if he were to just give up and go away. And so Paul, as he's getting to verses 14 through 16, which is somewhat the the theme, the thesis of what he's wanting to get at, he reminds Paul that he's been taught the word, verse 14. He reminds Paul that he's known them, or reminds Timothy, he's known them, he's been taught the word, and who taught him? He reminds him he's known them, from a child. And that he reminds him that all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And what he's basically telling Timothy is. If you want to remain faithful to Jesus. Then you must remain committed to God's word. Timothy is not going to be able to waffle on the things that make people angry. And remain faithful to Jesus at the same time. Timothy is not going to be able to lighten up on the things that he finds difficult. And remain faithful to Jesus at the same time. He is going to have to remain faithful to the word. In order to remain faithful to Jesus. So our our main thought last week and this week is our faithfulness to the son of God depends on our commitment to the word of God. Now this is true whether we're talking about a, a church remaining faithful to Christ or an individual remaining faithful to Christ. If you find a church or a a movement that begins to compromise on God's word in one area or another, you can be sure over time they will depart from their faithfulness to Jesus. In a similar way, those who are individuals who begin to waffle on God's word and compromise on it in one way or another, over time they will begin to waffle in their commitment and their devotion to Jesus. Now this passage gives us three reasons why our faithfulness to the Son of God depends on the commitment to the Word of God. We looked at one last week uh, and we looked at the other two today. So the first one last week was the Word of God reveals the Son of God. That's verse 15. From childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. God's Word has many 
many stories, but one theme. And the theme is the coming of the Son of God to earth, what he was going to accomplish in the name of God. So the Word of God reveals who Jesus is, what Jesus is like, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus demands. We, we cannot know Jesus apart from knowing the Word of God. And secondly, the Word of God was inspired by God. Now, this is where we start really getting into the authority of God's Word. That all Scripture, verse 16, is inspired by God. Now, there's a lot of things I'd like to say, but time has gotten away from me already. Um, all. Just, just circle the word all. And understand that in the Greek, the word all means all. It doesn't mean some. It doesn't mean when you read it, all the stuff that speaks to you is inspired by God. It doesn't mean that all the inspired scripture is profitable. It means all. So everything we have from in the beginning to come Lord Jesus is inspired by God. Now, what we want to understand, though, is what does inspiration mean? I mean, some authors, we've read books and those people seemed inspired. Some sermons or some songs, the, the writers seem inspired. Is that what it means? That all scripture is inspired by God, that these people just had a, a moment of intense clarity and wrote something passionate that's really good to read. No, it means far more than that. Inspiration is the means by which God moved biblical authors to write down his exact words without any errors. The inspiration of God's word extends to all parts of God's word, including everything God affirmed or denied about any topic. Now, the idea of inspired by God could very literally be translated as God breathed. In fact, if you have an NIV and maybe a few others, it does in fact say all scripture is God breathed. And the idea is really a good word picture of God breathing his words into the biblical author so they could record this message for others. Now, it's important for us to understand that inspiration starts with God and not with man. Because this is the basis for the authority of God's word. God's word is not the authority because Jeremiah wrote it. God's word is not the authority because the apostle Paul wrote it. God's word is the authority because God inspired Jeremiah. Because God inspired Paul. The authority of God's word comes from the source of God's word. And the source of God's word is God himself. And since inspiration starts with God and not with people, there are several implications of this we need to understand. Now, all of this, I think, to me, it makes sense. It's a logical flow of thought. If God's word is inspired by God, then what it means is what Scripture says, God says. Right? We call this the word of God, and, and thus that's what it is. So what Scripture says about any topic is what God says about that topic. Now, one of the ways we actually see this in God's word is that there will be an Old Testament passage and it will clearly tell us God is saying something. And then a New Testament author will quote that passage. But rather than saying, as the Lord said, they will say, and the scripture said. So let me give you one example because there's a lot. So this is the Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go. They may serve me. But indeed, for this reason, I've allowed you to remain in order to show you 
my power in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth. So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament, it says, for Scripture says to Pharaoh. Now, again, that's interesting. This isn't saying Scripture says God said. Right? That's not the point. It, it doesn't say that. It says Scripture says to Pharaoh. So in the Old Testament, God said to Pharaoh. And in the New Testament, Scripture says to Pharaoh. And, and this isn't all of them. This is many of them. We see it mother ideas along these lines. The biblical authors uh, claim, thus says the Lord, some variation of thus says the Lord around 420 times in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to me is used around 58 times. And the Lord spoke to Moses is used 66 times in the book of Leviticus alone. Now, the overall impression of such passages, it leaves no doubt as to the source of of the author's message. Now there are two reasons this is important. First is, as I said, what we have are the very words of God. And so it carries the very authority of God himself. So whatever this book says about a topic is what God says about that topic. Now the reason that's important is because in our day we're often told some things we shouldn't talk about because Jesus never spoke on those issues. And yet, if Jesus is God, then this is his word, too. And so what the Bible says is what Jesus says. So you want to talk about any issue that's controversial in our day. If God's word speaks about it, then that's what Jesus has to say about it, whether that's contrary to culture or not. What what scripture says, what God's word says is what God says. Now, again, if all scripture is inspired by God, that makes that should make absolute sense. Right. If I have Sharon, I give her a say, write this down and I tell her what to write. And that letter goes to Gerald. Gerald's not going to be like, well, yeah, that letter was inspired by Stacy to through Sharon. But I, I bet part of it's not his word. I bet part of it was just like Sharon was just like, well, I'm just writing my own thing on that. No, we, we wouldn't think that. In a similar way, we wouldn't think that we would say if God inspired it. And this is what God said, and this is what God meant. A further implication of all Scripture being inspired by God is God's word is without error. Now, the theological term for this is inerrancy. Inerrancy means God's word does not affirm anything contrary to fact. God's word tells us the truth concerning everything it talks about. Now, this doesn't mean God's word tells us every fact there is to know about every subject, but it does affirm whatever God's word says about any subject is true. So we could ask a question, how could we say God's word contains no errors? Well, again, it goes back to the authority. It goes back to the character and the nature of the God who inspires it. The inerrancy of God's word flows from the author of God's word, the inspiration of God's word. So when we talk about God being able to inspire people, consider the following. God knows all things. Part of what we affirm to be true about God is he is omniscient. He knows everything about everything. Isaiah 40 and 28 tells us God's understanding is unsearchable. David tells us in Psalm 147, 5, God's understanding is infinite. Just as there is no end to God's power and greatness, there is no end to his understanding and knowledge. God can speak authoritatively and accurately on any subject from history to science to theology. Since all God's word is inspired by God, 
that all God's word must be as factually accurate as God is. So God's word is without error because God knows all things, but also God cannot lie. We don't often think in terms of things God cannot do. But Paul tells us in Titus 1 and 2, our hope rests in a God who cannot lie. The, the Greek could literally be translated as the unlying God. The author of Hebrews tells us it is impossible for God to lie. Since God cannot lie, his words must or can always be trusted. So an inerrancy is denied about any issue. We're left to wonder, can God be trusted in anything? But if God is wrong or lying about one thing, how can we be sure God is not wrong or lying about another? So what this leads to is our picking and choosing what parts of God's word are authoritative. And that's a part of where there is no vision. People become unrestrained. If God was wrong or God lied about how Joshua and the Israelites conquered Jericho, well, who's to say he's not wrong or lying about salvation? And what we do when we do this is we enthrone our minds as the highest authority in life. If I can understand it, and if it makes sense to me, and if I can say, yes, I can see how that would be true, then absolutely that part is authoritative. But this part over here, I can't see how that could be right, or I can't see how a God would care about this, or I can't understand why this would be that way. Therefore... It, that part is, is not authoritative. And in doing that, we have elevated ourselves above God and we begin to deconstruct the living God and reconstruct a God in our own likeness. And it never stops with one thing. It starts with one thing. And then it spreads to something else and something else and something else until eventually we have cast off all restraint. And we are running wild. If God knows everything. And if God cannot lie. And if the Bible is his word. Then it is a logical conclusion. That God's word is without error in anything it affirms or teaches. For God's word to be an error would mean either God made a mistake. Or God deliberately lied to the prophets and the apostles. A denial of the inerrancy of God's word is an attack on the character and the nature of the God who inspired the word. Our faithfulness to the son of God depends on our commitment to the word of God and our commitment to the word of God depends on our conviction. It is indeed the word of God. So the word of God reveals the son of God. The word of God was inspired by God. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time on today. The word of God is the final authority for the people of God. Now, again, to me, this all makes sense. Right. If the word of God reveals the son of God, if that's the overall story. And it reveals it. And if the word of God was inspired by God. then it makes sense to me, this would be the final authority in all things. Right. I mean, if there is a God, a God who is over all. A God who speaks worlds into existence. A God who sends His Son to die on the cross for our sins. A God who brings the world to a close. A God who is the only God in all the world. If there is a God like that, and that God went to all the effort to have a book written 
that would tell us about his son and how to live and how to know his son, then it makes sense to me that 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 book would be the authority for those who claim to follow that God. This is why Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do the things I say? Jesus understood this point. Why would you, if you're going to say, well, I, I don't believe the book and I'm not going to do the book, you really don't believe in me at all. But if there is a God, and if Jesus is his son, and if he did die and rise and is coming again, then this book he has given, it makes sense. It would be the authority in our lives. The final authority, not a authority, the final authority. So if if our Culture and God's words come into conflict, then God's word becomes the authority. And we do what God's word says, despite what culture may say. But not just culture. If our will and our wants come into conflict with what God has said, then God's word becomes the authority. And we bend our will and our wants to fit God's word. Because if we don't do that, then those other things are the authority. The final authority is the culture. And what it accepts and what it says is okay that we like about God, that is the authority. What I want to do, what makes sense to me, what I like, that becomes the authority. God's Word is the final authority. That is the, the implication of this passage. It's inspired by God. It is the word of God. So to disbelieve or disobey any part of God's word is to disbelieve or to disobey God. This is the reason Jesus rebuked the religious leaders in Matthew 15, 1 through 9. They gave human tradition a higher place of authority than God's word. They had an idea of what things ought to be. God's word said something else and they said... I think our idea is better. And they did that, and so Jesus rebuked them for it. To disbelieve or to disobey any part of God's Word, to put anything else over the authority of God's Word, is to disobey God. So what does it look like in our lives when God's Word is the final authority in our lives? This is the part that Paul is getting at, main point he's making in the rest of verse 16 and 17. So God's Word... Is the final authority for doctrine, right? So it says, all Scripture is inspired by God, beneficial for teaching. Uh, teaching, doctrine is simply what we teach, what we believe. God wants us to know who He is and what He's like. He wants us to know about mankind and why at times we can be so very evil. He wants us to know the beginning of things and the end of things. God wants us to know about Jesus and his coming and his life and his death, his resurrection and his coming again. God wants us to know salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. God wants us to know how we're to live in this life, what things we should do, what things we should avoid. And all of these things are revealed to us in God's word. From God's word, we learn to think rightly about God, about Jesus, about salvation and life in general. 
Now, this is incredibly important because culture often contradicts what God has revealed to us in his word. Culture often tells us either we can't really know God or we can't really know what God is like or there is no God. Culture often tells us people are basically good and their main problem is a lack of resources and education. Culture often tells us Jesus was a good man, maybe even an enlightened man, possibly a fictional man, but not the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The world often tells us all religions are equal, Equally true or equally false, but no one religion has the right of way on being the right way. The world often tells us so long as we aren't hurting anyone, we can do anything we want to do. And anyone who says that what we're doing is wrong is unloving and unkind. And each of these ideas is contrary to what God has said In his word. So knowing this, we're left with a choice. What will be the final authority in our lives? Will the world's view be our final authority and lead us to conform to the world? Or will God's word be the final authority and lead us to conform to the person and the life of Jesus? We don't. Demonstrate God's word is the final authority in our lives by saying God's word is the final authority in our lives. That's a, a very easy entry point to it. The way we demonstrate God's word is the final authority in our lives is when something God's word says conflicts with culture, our heart, our thoughts, something else that's an influence on us. In that moment, we demonstrate. What is the final authority in our lives? If God's word is the final authority in our lives, then we we buck culture. We deny ourselves. We change our thinking and we conform to God's word. And if anything else is the final authority in our lives, then we buck God's word and we conform to culture. We live to please ourselves. We elevate our minds. We demonstrate God's words, the authority The final authority when our doctrine, what we believe about God, about Jesus, salvation and life in general, comes from God's word. And it's right no matter what anything or anyone else around us says. God's word is the final authority for our doctrine, but God's word is the final authority for rebuke. All scripture is inspired by God, beneficial for teaching, for rebuke. Rebuke basically means to show us what's wrong. God's word... It's not necessarily given to just make us feel good about ourselves. The message of God's word is not you're great, you're good, you're wonderful, by golly people like you. God is great. God is good. God is wonderful. God's word's often going to tell us you've got some problems, boy. And in that moment, we're going to have a choice to make. Because we, we think a certain way and God's word is going to say you that's the wrong way to think. You should think another way. We're going to act a certain way 
And God's word is going to say that is not the way you're supposed to act as a child of God. We're going to have certain priorities and God's word is going to say that is not the priority of a disciple of Jesus. We're going to have certain desires and God's word is going to say that is not the desire of someone who is filled with the spirit. And at time, this rebuke is going to come in the gentle nudge. Other times it will be hard and strong conviction. What are we going to do when God's word rebukes us? Will we ignore it and go on the way we're living? Will we find somebody who will tell us we're okay just like we are? And make no mistake, somebody somewhere will tell you you're fine. And let me be clear on this. If I'm thinking wrongly, if I'm believing wrongly, if I'm living wrongly, and I come to you and I say, God's word says this, and this is what I think or believe or do, and I really feel deep conviction from the Lord over that. If you love me, if you care about my soul, you will not tell me you're okay the way you are. That is a hateful, evil thing to do. It comes under the guise of compassion, possibly cowardice, but it is not love, and it is not caring. If you love me, if you care about my soul, you'll say, well, brother, I think you ought to change your thinking. I think you ought to change your believing. I think you ought to change your actions. Because God's word is God's word. So just as a, a rabbit trail soapbox. Somebody who tells you your feelings are right and God's word is wrong, that person is not your friend. And that person does not care about your soul. And if you tell somebody their feelings are right and God's word is wrong, you are not loving and kind. You are awful and evil and you should repent of that. But back to the what we're doing here. Will we go on like we were? Will we seek someone to tell us we're okay? Or will we respond with repentance and confession? It's easy to say we'll respond with repentance and confession until we're rebuked about something we really want to do or about a belief we really hold dear or a desire we really want to keep. At that point, we demonstrate what the authority in our lives is. The only way to demonstrate God's word is the final authority is when it rebukes us, we say, yes, God, you're right and I'm wrong. We say God's word can rebuke us over any belief, any action, any relationship, any attitude, any value, any priority, anything. And when it does, our response is repentance and confession. And any response other than that Shows something other than God's word is the final authority for our lives. God's word is the final authority for correction. All scriptures inspired by God, beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction. Now, this is a good thing about God's word. It not only tells us when we're wrong, it shows us how to correct what's wrong. It doesn't just point out something and say you're wrong in that area and leave us wrong. It says you're wrong in this area. And here's how you fix it. You believe this, that's wrong. Here's what you should believe instead. Now, the thing about correction is correction implies change. And this can be tough 
Because God will often use His Word to change things we don't want to change. God's Word may change the direction of our lives. God's Word may change the values we have. God's Word may change the relationships we have. God's Word may change how we spend our time or how we spend our money. God's Word may change how we raise our children. How we, what we watch on TV, how much TV we watch, the way we talk and what we're going to do with our lives. God's word can actually correct us in any area of life. That's what it means in Hebrews 4 and 12, that it gets between soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So what will we do when God uses his word to correct the way we think or the way we're acting or the way we're treating people? Or the, or the plans we have, or the values we have, or the priorities we have, or what we spend our money on, or how we use our time. I mean, how are we going to respond when God says, this is wrong, do this instead? If God's word is the authority in our lives, then we'll make the change. We'll say, my beliefs are wrong, God's word is right, I believe this. We'll say, God's word is right, my actions are wrong, I'm not going to do that anymore, I'm going to do this instead. And if we respond in any other way other than making the change, then something other than God's word is the authority, the final authority in our lives. And then God's word is the final authority for training in righteousness. All scripture is inspired by God, beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Through God's word, we are Instructed on how to become righteous, how to live righteous, how to have righteous relationships, react to stressors in a righteous way, and just generally think righteous, speak righteous, and, and be righteous in our lives. Now, the world's idea of righteousness and God's idea of righteousness are vastly different. The world teaches we are righteous by nature, but God's word teaches we are unrighteous by nature. The world teaches we can be righteous by being a good person. But God's word says none is righteous, none is good, no, not one. We can only live righteous after being made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. The world teaches righteous relationships are relationships that are mutually pleasing. But God's word teaches there are some people we should not be in any sort of a relationship with. And there are some things we cannot do. Outside of marriage. The world teaches we are to blast anyone who disagrees with us. But God's word teaches we are to be peacemakers. So what are we going to do when our idea of righteousness clashes with the world's idea of righteousness? Will we keep following the mindset of the world? Or will we make the necessary changes to, to have and to live and to be righteous as God's word describes? And again, the world is filled with saying this is a righteous anger. And, and, and for most of us, there's going to be like a part that says, I agree. Then we look at God's word. Does God's word justify that anger in that area over that thing and acting in that way? And if not, then what's the standard? God, the, the culture is going to say that you can... I mean, all of these things, how we live, our values, our talk, our actions... All of these things, the world is just going to constantly bombard us and say, this is okay. And on so many of those things, God's word says it is not even remotely okay. 
Where will our idea of righteousness come from? Culture? Or thinking? Or God's Word? For disciples of Jesus, God's Word ought to be the authority in our lives. And so it ought to set the standard for what righteousness is. And not the world, and not anything else around us. Verse 17, it says, So the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. I like this. I read lots of books. The most important book is this book. If I can only read one book, it's going to be this book. Because this is the book God has given for our training and our instruction. And through this book and the teaching of this book, we are able to do anything that God would have us to do. God's word is sufficient. I like J.I. Packer, but I don't need J.I. Packer's books. I like John Piper, but I don't need John Piper's books. I like David Platt, but I don't need David Platt's books. I need this book. I need God's word. This is what I need above all else. But it's not just me because I'm the pastor. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is what you need as well. You need this more than you need anything else. More than you need David Jeremiah, more than you need John Piper, more than you need Francine Rivers, more than you need any popular Christian author out there, you need God's Word. For only God's Word is given by God to make us fully capable, equipped for every good work. And an implication of this, and I'll move on and we'll close. If this is the most important book in my life, then this should be the book I read most in my life. One of the most important questions we can ever answer is what will be the authority in our lives? If we profess Jesus as Savior and we confess Him as Lord of our lives, then we must ensure God's Word supersedes anything and everything as the final authority in our lives. We must determine that nothing... That whatever God's word says, that's what I'm going to believe, that's how I'm going to act, and that's what I'm going to do. Let's stand.